0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's First 100 Film Conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Alfred Mealy is deeply inspired by Aristotle. That in itself, you might think, hardly makes him unusual, and you'd be right. After all, other than his even more celebrated teacher Plato, it's pretty hard to think of a philosophical role model more canonical than Aristotle. So the fact that Alfred, a professor of philosophy at Florida State University, looks keenly to Aristotle is not particularly surprising. But what is quite unique, I think, is Alfred's decidedly Aristotelian-like determination to wade in and empirically explore for himself deep abstract philosophical issues like irrationality, self-deception, self-control, and the principal subject of this conversation, free will. Was this something that you um, that you were wondering about as a child? Were you a particularly inquisitive child? Were you a philosophical child? Was this something that you had... had had imagined, uh, I'm not gonna say it was predetermined, because we'll get to that later, but was this, was this something that, uh, a philosophical career was something that you had in mind from an early age, or how did that happen?
1: No, I, I think as a youngster, I didn't even know what philosophy is, but um, yeah, I think I always had philosophical interests. So I was raised in a religious household, Catholic, and uh, I would just wonder how all these different things could work, like I didn't go to Catholic school until eighth grade, but I went to catechism when I was young. Mm -hmm. And I learned that you're supposed to love God more than your parents. And I asked my brother, Ron, one day, "Um, do you love God more than mom and dad? It doesn't make any sense to me because I don't know God and I know mom and dad. (laughs) How am I gonna love him more? And Ron, he's a year younger than me, said, yes I do because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I just found that I couldn't do it. So th- that was one of the things I worried Did about. Did Ron
0: come into the equation? Did you start measuring your love for Ron as opposed to your parents? Or? <laughs> no, I shouldn't <laughs> mention.
1: I wasn't clever enough back then. <laughs> uh, and I remember trying to figure out how gravity worked, but uh, it was with a globe and toy cars, you know. So why do these cars just stay on the globe? Why don't they fly off? So things like that, it, right. pro- maybe most kids don't think about them. I don't know. Um, but I got interested in philosophy in college. I, was, I started off as a math major. and I like math a lot. I mm-hmm. still do. Um, and then I took um, a math course that had a logic component. And I enjoyed logic. So then I took a logic course, which was offered by the philosophy department. Sure. And I thought, that was cool. W- what else is there in philosophy? Let me take a course. You know. So I took some courses. The one that really got me hooked was a course on Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm because these guys had views about everything and integrated views. And I thought, my different goodness, views this is well. amazing. Yeah. At the same time, I was taking psychology courses, but this was in a time when behaviorism was dominant in much of psychology and certainly where I was. And I just didn't find it all that exciting. So I did care about human behavior a lot right from the beginning, you know, in college and found that I couldn't get what I wanted from psychology. But I could, in a way, from Plato and Aristotle. Sure. Um, So after I took this Plato and Aristotle course, I decided to be a philosophy major. Then I went to graduate school in philosophy. I wrote my dissertation on Aristotle, on Aristotle's theory of human motivation. So back then, um, you know, I could read Greek pretty well, classical Greek, and that sort of thing.
0: When did you pick that up? Because presumably you didn't have that as an undergraduate. You must have had to do some extra work for that. In graduate school, Yeah. yeah.
1: I went to a Catholic high school, so I learned Latin then. And then in college, I learned Spanish. But neither of them would qualify for the language requirement in graduate school at the University of Michigan.
0: Spanish wouldn't qualify? No. So I, uh, I think
1: because I was in philosophy, if I had been in a different discipline, maybe it would have been okay, some different disciplines. you needed
0: what, French? Needed yeah, need
1: I needed French or German, so I took German. French. And then I started studying classical Greek, which is the hardest of those so languages, So I for sure. to understand. Yeah. And at that time, well, maybe my first three or four years out of graduate school, too, I thought I would just be an Aristotle scholar. You know, there are people who do that, they just write on Aristotle interpret. Um, but I was always really interested in some of these issues that he was talking about. And, you know, I just started having views of my own about these things. And I thought, well, you know, now it's time to branch out and Such tackle as. those issues directly. Well, my first book is called Irrationality. And it's on what's called weakness of will and also self deception and self control. And uh, Aristotle had a, a view on weakness of will, so did Plato. And they both had views on self control. Self deception, they didn't have much to say about. Aristotle, nothing that I can think of. And Plato, one sentence. But one sentence?
0: Yeah. What was the sentence?
1: Uh, the lie in the soul is the worst thing of all. That's about it. And the lie in the soul is, you know, lying to yourself.
0: Right. Um, Doesn't really explain how it can happen, though. No. It's just, it's just and, bad. And I wanted to know how it could happen. <laughs> yeah.
1: Or weakness of will is a matter of believing, being convinced that it's best to do one thing but not doing it and doing something else instead when you could have done the thing that you believe to be best. For example, you believe it's best uh, not to have a third bottle of beer because you're about to drive home, but you have one. Right. Or you believe it's best not to eat a second dessert, but you eat one. Right. So. Plato actually thought, this can't happen exactly. unless the guy doesn't really know what's best. You can't knowingly,
0: knowingly desire something which is not in your best interest, right? Isn't that a platonic?
1: That, yeah, that's a platonic idea. So if you go for it, then you must have been compelled to do it or you didn't really know. And Aristotle had a more relaxed attitude, but he, he did think that there had to be some defect in your knowledge in order to do this. And what I thought was, now this stuff happens, it happens to me. People sure. tell me it happens to them. Uh, I wanna figure out how.
0: People break New Year's resolutions all the time. Yeah, all the time. And
1: uh, so to figure out how, I, I didn't wanna do it you know, just purely uh, hypothetically or purely intellectually, I wanted to look at data. So I did, I looked at lots of data. And um, so early on I was really interested in how to apply scientific findings to these old philosophical questions.
0: Where did this data come from?
1: Uh, back then, I, was, uh, I got a lot of use out of Walter Mischel's data on self-control guess. in children. Okay. Oh, um, so he, would do ex- he wanted to know under what conditions kids could, these are like four-year-old kids, could delay the longest and wait for their preferred reward over a less preferred one. So under uh, one set of conditions, you get kids to say whether they like marsh- uh, marshmallows better than pretzels or pretzels better than marshmallows. And then you leave them both out, and you tell the kids, let's say they like marshmallows more, you tell them, um, you can have the pretzels whenever you want, but in order to get the marshmallows, you have to wait for the experimenter to return. So you can signal, come back, experimenter, and get the pretzels, or you can wait. When both rewards are present, the kids waited an average of less than a minute, and <laughs> they called the experimenter back. Um, when both of the rewards are covered up, so they can't see them at all, they delay way longer. Hmm. And so they thought, okay, so is it just that they can't see them? Is that what's doing the work? So they tried an experiment where they show them slides of the pretzels and slides of the marshmallows and they delay even longer in that condition than when they're both covered up. So then you have an interesting question. What the heck is going on there? And their theory back then was, um, well, look, these objects have a kind of informational value, and they have a sort of exciting pulling value. And when you're looking at the real objects themselves, it's the pull that's happening. When you're looking at the images, you're benefiting from the informational stuff. And if they
0: actually want to eat the stuff, the slides aren't, uh, that doesn't have a whole lot of excitement. I mean, they knew that that concept was out there anyway, presumably. That's right. They knew what a pretzel was, and they knew what a marshmallow was. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So when they're looking at the slides, they could be thinking, yeah, you know, these things are better than those. Uh, I'm going to wait. So that was one thing I used. Then, um, well, self-deception too. I guess I should tell you what the puzzle is before we get to the science. But So suppose we try to model self-deception on two-person deception, like I'm gonna deceive you into believing something. Well, if I'm gonna deceive you into believing something, then I know the truth, and I want to get you to believe the opposite of it. So now you put all that into one head, so I'm gonna deceive myself. Well, I know the truth, and I'm gonna get myself to believe the opposite of it. How's that gonna happen? right? Good question. Because I would know what I'm up to. Right. Um, Now, I guess maybe I should say a little bit about how I got interested in self-deception to begin with. So, now this first book of mine that I'm talking about, that was published in 1987. Uh, So I wrote it in 85, 86. It takes a while for these things to come out. But in 1981, when I was just working on Aristotle and nothing else, I was invited to be a commentator on a paper on self-deception by a major philosopher actually. And it was in my home state at that time, North Carolina, so I agreed to do it. But I didn't know anything about self-deception. I didn't even know that it was a philosophical topic. Mm-hmm. So what I thought I would do is just read a bunch of journal articles on self-deception, including some by this guy, and figure out what was going on. So you know, I read the articles. I saw that this was the main puzzle, the one I just described to you. And I thought, well, the stuff that we call self-deception probably doesn't involve intentionally deceiving yourself.
0: So, so, so back up, because I'm I'm not understanding the the even the point here. Um, you had me at how does this work? I'm yeah. not even sure it's possible. I'm not even sure what we're actually talking about.
1: Okay, well, that we're going to get there. Okay.
0: In fact, that's next. <laughs> okay. okay. So, um, yeah. So. What do, we, when we
1: say, oh, that guy's self-deceived, what kind of examples do we have in mind? And I think it's things like this. So um, the neighbors have evidence that a, like a 14-year-old kid is using drugs, uh, you know. And anybody really who pays much attention to that kid will come to the belief that he's using drugs.
0: Oh, so they don't go, to, go through the effort of, of, yeah. of being confronted with that.
1: And the parents just sort of block it out. Yeah, I think denial's involved in a lot of it. Or um, here's an old example from that book. So people who know this couple have good evidence that the wife, let's say, is having an affair, and and they believe that she is. And the husband has a lot of that same evidence, but he just turns his attention to other things. And he never comes to believe that she's having an affair, or maybe not until it's way too late, or something of the sort. So that kind of thing, I think, uh, gives us real examples of self-deception, and it just doesn't involve this really paradoxical feature of knowing the truth and getting yourself to believe the right.
0: So there's no paradox.
1: No. So what I try to do is, you know, explode the paradox. But then I want to know. So how does what I'm calling self-deception how does it work? happen? How does that happen? Um, And there's a lot of stuff that's relevant. Like there's evidence of something called the confirmation bias. So if you're testing a hypothesis, you just tend automatically really to look for confirming uh, evidence. Particularly if
0: you're an academic. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And much more so than you look for disconfirming evidence. So that's one thing that kicks in. Um, Beliefs are driven a lot by the salience of the things you're thinking about And when the parents are thinking about their kid, what might become salient to say images of him, memories playing happily in the sand with his toy trucks and you know, so they think, oh, a kid like this couldn't do it. Um, And on and on. There's more data too.
0: Um, But is this really a philosophical issue? I mean, the the other stuff that you said uh, before strikes me as legitimately philosophical. This strikes me as philosophical insofar as you're using your philosophical toolkit to identify the fact that there is really not a paradox. Yeah. Uh, and insofar as you're doing that, you're being rigorous philosophically and demonstrating something that no, 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 it's actually different in kind than what we were talking about before. It's it's a different. We're using the same word, deception, but it's very different than when I'm trying to convince you that there's a frog behind me or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it seems like as you've described it. It's a a psychological phenomenon, it's a sociological phenomenon maybe, uh, and you've been able to pare it away from the potential realm of paradox, but once you've done that, it doesn't strike me as a deeply philosophical conundrum that needs to be addressed anymore, but maybe I just don't understand. what I think that's a philosophy should be.
1: No, I understand. Yeah. See, now, I I think of philosophy very broadly, and there just aren't many limits. Um, Right. So I explode the paradox, you know, in the way I, I suggest. Right. But people are still gonna wonder, okay, so how does this happen? You know, the thing you're talking about, yeah. what you're calling self-deception. And then I can draw on this empirical work and explain how it happens, which actually makes the exploding of the paradox better because now I put an alternative phenomenon in its place and I explain how it happens, okay. you know? And so people think, I hope, I mean, what I aim at is hey, that's great, I'm going for this, I'm gonna give up this old model of self-deception, I'll move on to this new one. Um, There's statistical data that's interesting in this connection too. So um, there was a survey done, maybe it was 1989, it was quite a while ago, of uh, students who were taking the SAT, and they would rank themselves on certain traits or skills or whatever. And I remember that there were about a million of them uh, 25% rank themselves in the top 1% of ability to get along with others. And it's it's just trait after trait like this or ability after ability. And uh, so what the heck's going on there? You know, why so many? And there's this uh, overestimating we tend to do of ourselves. And- uh, I'll Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it turns out the most realistic people about themselves are depressed people. And what we don't know is, are they depressed because they're realistic or?
0: You know doesn't go the other way around. they could be only completely adjusted people
1: in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have the most self knowledge uh, so a little self exaggeration or whatever is is a good thing, I think, but then you can see how this could just go a little bit further and we get into something you might want to call self deception You might even want to call that self deception sure. um, well yeah.
0: something's going on if if twenty five percent of the people think they 're in the top one percent of getting along with other people there, there's a there's <laughs> There's certainly a misalignment with reality. So to that extent that there's there's obviously deception. But uh, Yeah. It's okay to do this, I suppose. It's very it's it's very it's very calm. There's (laughs) no 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 police came, there's no (laughs) we didn't have to shut everything down and start again. Yeah. Um so free will, moving moving over there. Um And I want to get back to some of these things if we have time at the end because um, that's uh, really interesting as well. But um, I did want to talk a lot about free will and you you have all these books on free will and you've just come out with another book on free will for the general public. Mm -hmm. And you've uh, recently finished this uh, Templeton Foundation sponsored The Big Questions uh, project, three-year project, right, on on free will? Yeah. Um, So... uh, there seems to be a reason to to talk about that. And from my perspective, well, before, before I get into that, uh, tell me a little bit about your interest in free will and when that started.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, I actually remember. Um, so I talked about that first book, Irrationality, mm-hmm. Weakness of Will, Self-Deception. Um, and that led to my second book, which was a book about the springs of human behavior. What causes us to do what we do? And you know it's interesting and complicated um, but I have a causal theory about how all that works and so then I thought okay um, I do have you know a general understanding of how human behavior is produced but it's human behavior in general, intentional behavior. And I thought well now it's probably at last time to tackle free behavior. Um, And I guess I'll use just a little technical terminology. We can get back to it later if you want. But Mm -hmm. there's this old dispute between uh, philosophers who say that free will is compatible with determinism. Determinism has to be defined in a certain way for this to make sense. It's a standard way in philosophy. And philosophers who disagree. And when I was a student, you know, I'd read about free will. Uh, I even taught a bit about it in Mm -hmm. undergraduate courses. But I always thought. And you know, this is kind of stale. Um, so I wanted to wait to work on it until I had a thought, a new thought, you know, something that would be exciting. Um, <clears throat> so that book on intentional action was published in 1992. And just a little bit later, it was time uh, for me to apply for my second round of sabbatical grants. I had one to write the first book. And so this would have been about six years later. Um, and it was funded and it was a book on free will. Uh, I called it Autonomous Agents because free will suggests to some people anyway, something spooky or mysterious or spiritual. And I just wanted to keep all that under wraps, Mm. especially the will part. And so I just used uh, autonomy as a name for free will and went from there and
0: what I did
1: because I didn't want to settle this, or try to settle this dispute between the compatibilists and the incompatibilists.
0: You didn't want to try to do it? No. Nope. Okay. And I never have. Well, that, that, that I can understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right.
1: <laughs> well, see, that's something, too. Uh, I like to try to do things I think I have a reasonable chance of succeeding at doing. Fair so. Enough. It's just <laughs> part of my style. So what I did was to develop two different theories, two different full-blown theories of autonomy, one for people who are happy to say that it's compatible with, for, with uh, determinism, and one for the others. And they overlap in lots of ways. There's a, a difference that's crucial to that distinction. Um, and the idea of that book was, I had an account of self-control too, so a whole theory of self-control. Spelled that out in part one of the book And what can we add to self-control to get autonomy? And then the second half of the book was about Mm. that. The reason self-control isn't enough for autonomy or free will is you can be very self-controlled in the sense that you resist all desires that are contrary to your better judgments. You're really good at that. You know, you stick to the plan. But now this is philosophy, keep in mind. So hypothetically, it could be that the system of values that drives all your self-controlled behavior is uh, brainwashed in. Sure. Say, well, if it's brainwashed in, then it looks like you're not an autonomous agent. It looks like somebody else ultimately is in charge. So, yeah, that was the idea of that book, and that was my first book on well, half the book was on free will, although I called it autonomy.
0: Th- this um, is uh, this is this whole idea. I think it was what Schopenhauer or something, right? I mean, you can. Uh, y- y- you can do what you want, but you can't change what it is that you actually want to do. It's this, this idea of you can't you can't will what you want. You can, but you can act upon whatever your desires are. Anyway, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, no, we'll,
1: th- we'll, we'll get there later. That that is one of the ideas here. Mine is different, though. I think you can actually revise your values by reflecting on them. So you could, right. you know, you could care a lot about something, and then eventually you ask yourself, well, is this thing worth caring about as much as I do? And right. Right. you could come to see that it isn't, and right. then you don't care about it as right.
0: much. Um, so I, I was talking about this earlier with you just a few minutes when we were chatting. One of the things that has frustrated me, long frustrated me about um, these sorts of discussions is that all too often people are talking about different things when they're using the nomenclature that's involved. Mm-hmm. So when people say free will, it's not clear what exactly they're talking about. When people say, determinism, it's not clear what exactly they're talking about. And it's natural, you will have all sorts of divergence in terms of opinions and theoretical constructs when you can't really get a clear sense of what the terms actually mean to begin with. Yeah. Um, and in, in your book, Free, you spend a lot of time at the very beginning highlighting those very points. You're saying, okay, different people mean different things. This is what I mean, and here's one interpretation based upon Uh, one analysis of what these words mean when people use the words they use them in this context here's another context and you delineate in fact at the very very beginning of the book you talk about um, three different types of notions of free will and you make this analogy between three different types of gasoline uh, Mm -hmm. uh, or petrol if you happen to be british yeah right or or, or whatever so what
1: we'll call regular free will if we use the gas station analogy, it's regular. So um, a sufficient condition for that is that you're sane and rational, well-informed. You make a, a decision on the basis of the information, a rational decision, mm-hmm. and nobody's uh, coercing you or compelling sure. you. There's no gun to your head. Um, that is enough for the decision to be free, according to this regular view of free will. Right. But then, see this is where we get to deep openness, then somebody might think, yeah, but that's not enough because it could be that really that was the only decision you could have made given the laws of nature and the initial conditions of the universe. So deep openness is lacking in this regular free will. So now in the mid-grade, what they wanna do is add it in. So in the regular one, it could have been the case that the laws of the universe chose things in advance. I mean, if you want to put it your way. That, and regular free will says, that's OK. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're sane and rational. Nobody's holding a good gun to your head. You have good information and so on. Okay. But the people at the mid-grade say, no, that's not enough for free will. What you also need is that given everything as it actually was the state of the universe a billion years ago and all the laws of nature.
0: You could still go to the left or go to the right. You could go either way. Right.
1: And then, um, you know, the third one, the spiritual one, adds something more to all this, that there's a soul at work somehow. Right. Now that one is out there in the real world.
0: I've done some... Is it out there in the real world? You mean, apparently, people... (laughs) That
1: idea. That idea, yeah. Yeah, I've done some research on it, so have others, and, uh, I mean, controlled research, you know. And it looks like maybe 25% of the people in, say, the southeastern U.S. think that free will requires souls, but that's only 25% of people, it's just the southeast U.S. Um, so most, of, most people are in the other two groups, yeah. and, you know, I'm no expert on souls, so I don't have much to say about that, and I focus on the first two kinds.
0: Okay.
1: okay. Can we define determinism just for this? Sure. Okay. So this is the way we think of it in the free will literature. If a universe is such that a complete description of the universe at any point in time uh, and a complete list of the laws of nature entails all other truths about the universe, then the universe is deterministic. That's Mm -hmm. what it is for it to be deterministic. Um, And so the regular free will people say, and you can have free will in a universe like that because it doesn't matter whether you could have done otherwise or not given the same past and the same laws of nature. All that matters really is that you're sane, rational, well-informed, and uncoerced. That's enough for free will. So free will is compatible with determinism. Right. And the mid-grade guys say, well, and this is sort of running through it again, no, that can't be right. You know, you, in order to have free will, It needs to be like this, that given exactly the same past and exactly the same laws of nature, you sometimes make a different decision than the one you actually did. And one way I suggest to try to picture it is with the rewind thing that you mentioned. So the world plays out until now, and I decide to raise my right hand. And the mid-grade guys say, well, okay, that decision isn't free, no matter how sane and rational and uncoerced it was unless you could have done something else, given everything exactly as it was. So the way to picture it is, OK, we roll back time 10 milliseconds, roll it forward, and they're saying that in order for the decision I actually made to be free, some other possible course of action had will occur in one of these reruns. And it might be deciding to raise my left hand. Yeah. Or it might be thinking a bit longer about what to do.
0: So. Um, so the first position of compatibility mm-hmm. strikes me as incoherent. Okay. So, um, uh, or, or, or redefines determinism to an extent that renders it quite different than what I think it should be. So, so help me with this, because this is something that I've struggled with for a long time. So if, if I believe, and it's a big if, but if I believe that the laws of nature are such that they are deterministic, mm-hmm. and you start with... Um, uh, and, and they include everything in the material world, and to eliminate your soul issue, there's is nothing other than the material world. Okay. So we're all materialists. Yeah. We believe that um, um, oh, that everything consists of stuff that is governed by the laws of nature, mm-hmm. and these laws <coughs> of nature are deterministic, and, uh, which is to say that if we know the initial conditions at any time T, then we're going to know what's going on at T prime. And there's this big assumption that <coughs> knowing all these particles and the mechanics that describe them enables us to be able to scale up to all sorts of things like beliefs and desires. Yeah. And, and that's tremendously complicated, but we're ignoring all of that. We're assuming that there's nothing other than material stuff and mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it seems to me that, um, that if, you, if you make those assumptions, you start off at this particular time and then you wind up at, at another time over here, it means that um, if you take my example of the fork in the road, mm-hmm. that if I start <coughs> off beforehand and the, you know the laws of physics, then I know that I'm going to opt to turn left at a particular time. Mm-hmm. So that's all, that's all determined according to this, mm-hmm. this hierarchy. Now the fact that I then <coughs> think that I have a choice of whether or not I'm going to turn left or turn right or whatever, and there are all these different states in my head. It doesn't it doesn't really matter, because at the end of the day, I will necessarily turn left. So all of that is just psychological stuff mm-hmm. that um, um, that may be reassuring to me. But actually, if I can predict ahead of time, way back in time, no, he's going to actually turn left, then my actions are determined. And as such, they are controlled. And, the, and my notion of... The fact that I could have gone to the right is actually an illusion.
1: Okay. <laughs> no, that, you know, that makes good sense, what you said. Now, there are some different replies to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, some you won't like. One you might not have thought about. So, uh, but I'll start with one that you probably won't like. Mm-hmm. But some compatibilists, now remember, they really are claiming that determinism, just as you described it, is Mm -hmm. compatible with free will. Right, and I think
0: that's completely incoherent, so convince
1: me otherwise. Okay, they're not disagreeing with you about what determinism means. Okay. Uh, So some will say, no, you know, the only sense in which you need to be able to have decided otherwise in order to have free will is that you're such that if conditions had been slightly different, like if you'd had different reasons to do things, you would have acted differently.
0: No, but that's, according to the laws of physics, that's just not true. Well, it might be tomorrow,
1: true. It might be true that you're such that if reasons had been different, you would have acted differently because the con-
0: inti- initial conditions would have been different. That's right. But we're all assuming that the initial conditions are the. S- I mean, that's okay. There, if you graph it, right, you would yeah. say that different initial conditions lead to different results. Yeah. But that's not free will, as we all understand it. We're here right now. We have well, the same initial conditions for everybody, right? Unless you're talking th- parallel universes, right? We have the same initial conditions for everybody. <coughs> That's pretty well
1: as these guys are understanding it. They're saying, look, all that matters is how a guy thinks about things. Yep. Whether, whether he's sane, whether he's rational, whether anybody's pushing him around. And then they say, if it's important to you to think about being able to do otherwise, well, the sense you're thinking about it and doesn't matter, they say to you, what really matters is just whether the guy is receptive to reasons. So that if reasons had been different, his behavior would have been different. Now, a lot of people don't like this at all. I can tell you don't.
0: No, but it it, it, it strikes me as if if what we're talking about is whether I had the choice to move left or right. We don't have to be. Okay, let's get to the second point.
1: So you made a choice. We want to know, did you do it freely?
0: Exactly. That's what I understand by
1: free will. And what you might say is you didn't do it freely unless you could have chosen otherwise. Right. Okay, now. Here's a case, this is an old thought experiment. It's from uh, Harry Frankfurt, 1969. Mm -hmm, Uh, But we'll do, we'll do my version of it because his has a certain glitch in it that you'd probably spot. So we're gonna do mine, okay? Okay? So there's this uh, potentially mind-controlling guy on the scene. Mm -hmm. And what he does is to implant in my head a certain process, and it sort of ticks away like an alarm clock, and it's set to cause in me, at a certain time, a decision to steal your car. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but it just so happens that I'm thinking about stealing your car anyway, mm-hmm. and my uh, and this universe now is going to be indeterministic. So, but it's not oh, a de- we're assuming an indeterministic universe. Yeah, yeah. Universe. Well, if you assume okay. an indeterministic universe. Well, well that's okay, though. Well, All right. You, you want to see the point. This okay. is a cool old thought experiment. So I'm thinking about whether to steal your car or not. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that at just the moment that that process that was implanted would have caused my decision if I hadn't decided on my own, I decide on my own. Mm-hmm. I decide on my own to steal the car. Now, I decided on my own. The universe is indeterministic, and, and uh, nobody's pushing me around. I'm saying I'm rational. So it looks like what we should think is, hey, that's a free decision. He freely decided to steal the car. But I couldn't have done otherwise in the thought experiment than decide to steal the car, because if I hadn't decided on my own to do that, this process would have caused me to decide to do that. Now, this little thought experiment, well, it's part of a bigger paper, um, led lots of people to think that you don't really need to be able to do otherwise in order to have acted freely. There's a case in which you can't. Um, there's John Locke's old example of a locked room. Um, mm. This one isn't fully persuasive. It is up to a point until you start thinking a little bit further. But um, there's a guy in a room, Yeah. and he's having a nice conversation And he thinks about leaving. He decides to stay, and he stays. But it turns out he couldn't have left because the room was locked and he had no way out. So he stayed freely, uh, even though he couldn't have done otherwise than stay. Now the move is gonna be, if you don't like this, well, yeah, okay, he stayed, but he stayed because he decided to stay, you could say. uh, And he decided freely to stay and you could say, but what that requires is that he could have made a different decision. Not that he could have uh, acted successfully on the decision, but he could have made it and then tried to get out. So what, what Frankfurt does in the thought experiment is to sort of move the locked room into the head. Yeah, You know?
0: I, I think there's a lack of understanding of, it, it, it. I think we're getting too far down, but I'm happy to have the conversation with you. I think there's a lack of understanding of the all-encompassing nature of the laws of physics, which include the room, which include yourself, which include all the rest of this, and what an actual end state is, and how it gets mapped on. If there's one end state in a deterministic universe, there's one end state, which includes the fact that, um, it includes all sorts of things. It includes meta things, like whether I think the room would be locked, and whether the room is locked, and all that sort of stuff is all a necessary final state under this hypothesis of the laws of determinism, of the laws of physics so compatibilists I'm realize
1: all that and what they say is we don't believe that that's incompatible with free will because they either the, the compatibilists divide into two kind mm-hmm. two kinds you know maybe here's a way to get to it to see what they're do, thinking do you, do you
0: think first of all i mean en- enough of what i think because yeah uh, uh, i mean I'm, I'm trying to explore what you think so i i've always thought that I, I've heard this word compatibilist I've read a lot of stuff about it I've never had one coherent view of how compatib- compatibilism you can you can make free will compatible with hardcore determinism and by hardcore determinism I mean exactly what I'm saying that the mm-hmm. laws of physics lead to one particular end state and and I'm I'm assuming some form of uniqueness right going on yeah um, that can be scaled back up at the end of the day and what I mean by free will is yes the ability to have chosen option A instead of cho- choosing option B. Not think that I could have chosen option A and option B and yeah. not be rational, but really have made that choice. Holding the past and the laws of nature. First. Holding the past and the laws of yeah. nature. That seems to me completely impossible to be able to do. I cannot see how you can make those. It seems virtually tautological, in fact. So uh, I've heard these words being used yeah. and thrown around, but I've never been able... Maybe I'm just pig-headed or closed-minded or something, but it seems to me... It's like arguing up and down at the same time. It seems like one is a direct implication of the other. And I, and I recognize it if you pull away and you say, no, what I mean by free is that you think you might have had the choice or you're acting rationally or you're you know dancing on the moon or something like that. Sure, there could be all sorts of things. But to really have been able to go to the left as opposed to going to the right when the laws of physics tell you that at the end of the day you will go to the left, yeah, it seems impossible to me. To, to uh,
1: all right, then I think the short answer is you're making an assumption that the compatibilists reject. And the assumption you're making is that in order to do a thing freely, you have to have been able to do otherwise, holding the past and the laws fixed. Exactly. Uh, They reject it.
0: How do they reject it? Well,
1: here's one way. This is what I was about to get to, really. So the way a lot of philosophers think about free wills. It's a necessary condition for moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. So now they have these things tied together. Right. And now you might think about practices of holding people morally responsible in the actual world, say. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. And Then you might think, well, heck, maybe the actual world is deterministic. Would these practices still make sense? And sure, you might think, yes, they do make sense. You know, it makes sense to convict guilty people
0: provided well, as a practical, that as they're a practical method o- absolutely but that's so not a, that's not a philosophical metaphysical argument that's a practical argument it's right? a practical
1: kind of argument that might get people and has got some people to think quite a few that really that's all there is to free will just what would underwrite Crap. Come on praise and blame. I mean, okay, <laughs> now remember my own view. Remember early, early on I said, I do not take a position on this dispute between compatibilists
0: no, and other. No, but, 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 but I mean, uh, well you could think that it's ridiculous, but the idea that, oh, well, there's all this, but we have to be practical because we live in the real world, fair enough. I mean, I think there are other ways around it that I, I hope we'll have a chance to get to, like maybe this deterministic uh, argument is in fact not true with the laws of physics and their you know, there are ways of probing that. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of saying, oh yeah, well that's all true, but, but how, our justice system would collapse if we would do this and our whole sense of moral responsibility would collapse if we would take this seriously and so when we build societies, no, we, we act as if uh, the, the contrary is true and moreover that's the way we feel when we're making actions all the time and so this is all some metaphysical framework and so we should build societies in such a way that we ascribe free will uh, and, and, and uh, Call free will this and ascribe moral responsibility to people who are making decisions this way and that way I'm completely in agreement with that But then mm-hmm. don't tell me that that's some sort of argument at the metaphysical level for what's actually going on because it's Because well, it's not I mean th- 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 it seems to me.
1: Yeah, you could think that it's not a metaphysical issue But what's going on really is that they're suggesting look you make this certain assumption about free will Why do you make it? Um, and we think that if you think about things in a more down-to-earth way, where you tie free will to moral responsibility, you find it really difficult to believe that nobody would be morally responsible for anything just because determinism is true, then you're, you start pulling the bar for free will lower. OK, that's how they think about it. Now, I know people who just won't go for it no matter what. It doesn't Com- make any sense, it's just, it's <laughs> just
0: logically incoherent. Uh, I mean, only you, if
1: you define free will the way you're defining fair it. Fair enough, Okay.
0: fair enough. I mean, and this gets back to what we said before. If you call something different, or we're talking about a different thing by, by what, what we mean by free will, if we're, if we're not actually meaning that you could have gone to the left uh, just as easily as you could have gone to the right and it was up to you, Yeah. Um, and, and you, you're defining it differently, Okay, fine. I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Okay, um, and I don't even really care operationally <laughs> to the extent that I'm not you know I'm not uh, lying awake at night worrying about, about this sort of thing because yeah. I actually do as it happens believe that I have free will. Okay, uh, but I uh, I th- for me the challenge is how do I uh, how do I jibe. My belief and conviction that I have free will, with what I just said, which seems to me a very strong argument. So I think for me the approach is okay. How do you
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do you address that given given the constraints, as it were? How do you find a way out of it? Or, or but not just say, oh well, it works in practice, and so therefore we just we just won't worry about it. That's, that strikes me as as, as uh, shilly shallying.
1: Well, we'll get up to the second level of free will pretty soon, which sure. will bring in indeterminism. Sure. But maybe one more kind of thing on this.
0: So. Sure. Uh,
1: Eddie Namius, who's a a terrific guy, used to be a colleague of mine here, has done uh, empirical studies on whether lay folk are compatibilists or incompatibilists. And you don't want to ask them, hey, is determinism compatible with free will? Most people mean by determinism, oh, whatever that thing is that's incompatible with free will, right? They don't have clear thoughts about it. So what he does is to write up little stories, one-paragraph stories, in which it's clear that determinism is true of the universe, of the universe they're thinking about, without using the word determinism, uh, and then have a person do something, and then ask, uh, did the person do it of her own free will, or did she have free will at the time? Does she deserve to be blamed? You know, questions like that. Uh, One story he uses is a supercomputer story where the supercomputer... Can predict on the basis solely of its knowledge of the laws of nature and the initial conditions everything that everybody will ever do. Uh, it's it's done this thousands of times. It's always been right. You know that kind of thing. So if that's going to be working out, that universe is going to be deterministic. And then he'll have people do um, moderately good things, moderately bad things, or neutral things. You know, in his stories, and then ask people uh, things like, did he do it of his own free will? And it turns out a majority of lay folk say yes. So their answers are consistent with what compatibilists say. Now, why do I this say this, a, this to you? This is supposed to convince me? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm right there. We're, we're almost at the same time on these thoughts. <laughs> pretty cool. Uh, so why do I say this to you? Because what might happen is now you start thinking, oh, shit. Why do I think this? Is it just some idea I picked up you know, in school long ago? Um, am I out of touch with the people yeah. uh, and with some specialists? Um, and then you know, once you start thinking about that, you might become a bit more flexible. I know I'm really flexible about this because I can see these two different ways of thinking about things, a compatibilist way and an incompatibilist way. And where did I come by my ideas about what free will means? Well, maybe I had some, you know, in Catholic school, I don't know, in high school. But uh, I sort of get them by reading the opposing sides.
0: So now you're going to tell me that Catholics are more flexible? I don't know about that. (laughs) the catechism. I think the Pope just
1: came out uh, saying that evolution is true and so is uh, Big Bang Theory.
0: Well, there you go. So the Pope <laughs> is more flexible than <laughs> I <like> am. <that>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so shall we bump up to the next one then? The sure. That, that, you, know
0: what, you know what I'd, I'd, I'd also like to do? Uh, I want to get back to some of the issues that were in your book because I, uh, um, we've sidestepped a lot of them and, uh, and I, I think it's important to to talk about them. So what am I talking about specifically? I'd like to talk about neurobiological arguments that people give, the 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 Libid Experiments, and so forth uh, mm-hmm. about free will and what they mean by free will, again. Yeah. Um, and and I want to talk about social psychologists and what they mean by free will. And um, and again, without even going into the gas, uh, the gasoline metaphor <laughs> or hierarchy or, or what have you, which I think maybe sidetracked uh, me a little bit, um, It it's interesting to me as I was reading your book because people mean... Very different things than what I mean when when uh, when we're talking about free will so for example um, people in the neurobiological community that are using these these bit experiments uh, as justification for one thing or the other depending on their perspectives they're defining free will in terms of whether actions are consciously done or unconsciously done yeah um, and so for them there's this sense of uh, am I doing something out of because i'm uh, without knowing, without realizing it, is my, somehow this notion of, is my brain making these decisions for me? And and that would have some uh, reflection on their understanding of free will, which is actually quite different from my particular perspective on free will. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I don't make this big distinction between the brain and the person. Um, uh, somebody's, I mean, if, put another way, if the brain has free will, then that's still free will. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just pushing things back a little bit further. And, and then social psychologists talk about free will in terms of some kind of subconscious effect that people have, that, that is made for most people on their decisions, so, which is to say that if, um, if people are around other individuals with different values, then those values rub off on them without them being fully aware of it, and the, everything from subliminal advertising to role-playing to what have you, mm-hmm. that we're living in a world surrounded by all sorts of cultural attachments, some of which we're aware of, some of which we, we may not be aware of, and that, again, we're making a lot of decisions without full awareness of all aspects of those decisions, and that's, what they, they, that's mm-hmm. how they're interpreting aspects of free will. Right. So I want to talk about these things in more detail as you talk about, uh, I think, very well in your book. But I I guess my central point is, again, this emphasis that different people mean different things when they're actually talking about free will. Yeah, that's true. Now, uh,
1: about these studies, you know, really we should do different kinds of studies one at a time. But about the neuroscience studies... Yeah,
0: let's focus on that for a while. They get to the
1: conclusion that there's no free will partly from an empirical claim that they make on the basis of the data. And the empirical claim is that in the cases they're studying, the agents, the people, make their decisions unconsciously. So if they can't, if they're not entitled to that claim on the basis of the data, you don't even make the connection to free will. Right. The process so gets shut off. So I can explain why so you're not way back. entitled let's to let's
0: that. But let's talk about the experiment first. And okay. Then, and let's go all the way back and, and, and set the scene for people who don't, don't know who Benjamin Libet is, have never okay. heard of these experiments, all the rest of that stuff.
1: Yeah, let's do that. So let's do the Libet experiment. So the task was to flex your wrist whenever you want and you're watching a really fast clock. The spot on it makes a complete revolution in about two and a half seconds. And you're hooked up uh, for EEG, so readings of electrical conductivity on the scalp are being taken, and you're hooked up to an electromyograph, so when your muscle starts moving, uh, that can be detected. You need to flex at least 40 times to get data that are usable. So you're sitting in the chair, you're watching the clock, and what you're supposed to do after you flex is report on where the spot was on the clock when you first became aware of your urge, intention, or wish, or decision, or
0: whatever. Because the idea is that you tell these subjects, flex your wrist w- whenever you want at some time, and then just pay attention to when you decide to do that.
1: right? Yeah, that's right. That's the basic idea. Um, and when subjects are regularly reminded to be spontaneous, that is not to plan in advance or think about when to flex, I'm gonna draw this because it's so much easier. You get um, a ramp up. So here's the time at which the muscle starts moving. Uh, Under the condition I mentioned, it's 550 milliseconds, a little more than half a second before then. uh, You start getting a ramp up in the EEG readings and the average time of first reported awareness of this urge or intention or decision or whatever, is 200 milliseconds before the muscle starts moving
0: they call this w time so, so just to summarize as i understand it right so these people are flexing their wrists at, at spontaneous times mm-hmm. and then what's happening is they uh somebody flexes their wrist and they have uh they they can have the signal for the muscle in their actual wrist, and they have a signal in their head for when they're actually doing something, and then the people are recording when they think yeah. they're deciding on to flex their wrist. Right. And what's happening is they're detecting a signal that starts here, mm-hmm. and then over here, uh, 300 milliseconds later, mm-hmm. and, and a little bit more, then, then, they, then the people say, yeah, that's when I wanted it to flex my wrist, and here they're detecting a signal when the, the wrist actually flexes. That's
1: right. So what Libet says is when the EEG ramp-up starts, um, that's when the decision is made. And he takes these reports that are made after the flex uh, seriously and says, but people don't become aware of those decisions until then. So uh, the decision was actually made about a third of a second before the person became conscious of it. And um, then you get the connection to free will and the claim is Well, look, unconscious decisions can't be free. They have to be conscious decisions in order to be free. But is he entitled to assert that the decision is made there, as opposed to something happening there that's part of a causal process that maybe results in a decision later on? So one thing you'd want to know, we we can distinguish between decisions you make now to do things now, like flex now. And that's what you're supposed to be doing in these studies and call those proximal decisions and decisions you make now to do things later like you decide now you're going to have dinner at seven o'clock, something like that. So he's talking about proximal decisions and what we'd want to know is how long it takes them to cause muscle motion. That's one thing we'd want to know. We'd want to get independent evidence about it. Now if you think of a decision to do a thing as just a, a little action of forming an intention to do it, Then if you can get information about how long it takes proximal intentions to do things with your hand to cause muscle motion, that would be very useful.
0: They have these other experiments as well that you pointed out. Yeah, yeah. So what
1: you'd want ideally is, uh, well, there are reaction time experiments where you know that when you get the go signal, what you're supposed to do is uh, flex your wrist, for example. And so you can measure the time between the emission of the go signal and the muscle burst in those examples. Now what you'd want to do is find one where people, or do one yourself if you have a lab, where people are watching a clock, because that's going to divide attention and slow down reaction time. So back then, you know, I didn't have any big grant money when I wrote my book Effective Intentions. Um, I looked for a study like that, and I found one. It was by Patrick Haggard and Elena Magno, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, so subjects were watching a Libit clock, and they were doing a go signal reaction time test. And the mean time between the emission of the go signal and the beginning of muscle motion was uh, minus 231 milliseconds. And it takes, of course, a little time to detect the go signal. And so the time between intention acquisition, if that's what happens here, and muscle burst is going to be less than that. Um, And that could be how it is in Libet's case, too, that the intention doesn't really come up until around here somewhere. And back then, there's a sort of pre-intention causal process up and running that may or may not issue in an intention here. Now, this is a point I've made and persuaded a lot of people of because there's more to say about it. Like, you get similar readings when I'm watching you about to do something and we're taking readings from me and I know that you're about to do it. We get curves that look a bit like this if we average over many trials. So then some people will say, well, maybe you're right about that. Maybe that's not a decision back there. Maybe the decision doesn't happen until here. But they say, but here we've hit the point of no return for the making of that decision. Now that things got that far, there's no way the process is going to be stopped. So is the point of no return hit there? Well, what you'd want to know when you're thinking about that, is, hey, do we ever get curves in Libet experiments where part of it looks like this, and then it just falls but, off. but there's no subsequent muscle burst? Well, it turns out that Libet's data don't let you look at that because when you do studies like this, you need something to signal the computer to make a record of the preceding second or so of brain activity, mm-hmm. you know, to store it so they can do the back averaging, mm-hmm. do the statistics. And what he used to trigger the computer to do that was the muscle burst. And again, what we want to see So by definition, there's always going to be a muscle burst there. Yeah, just because that's the trigger. So we don't have any good reason to believe that the point of no return has been hit here either. And about points of no return, there are stop signal reaction time studies too, just like there are go signal ones. So the task would be, hey, you know, flex when the spot hits the 9 o'clock point on the clock, unless the clock. color changes from, say, blue to red. And you can move that stop signal closer and further from the designated time, and people will stop. Stop signal reaction time on average is about 200 milliseconds, too. Mm -hmm. So now if you can do that with an external signal, what about an internal signal? Like, yeah, I'm kind of tempted to flex soon, but don't do it. That actually brings us to live its veto. I don't know if you want to talk about the veto or not. Well,
0: uh, I want to highlight a a couple things. First of all, my understanding is that this caused, uh, and and in some circumstances, still causes a real firestorm of hyperbole when it comes to people (laughs) talking about whether or not we actually have free will and what's proven and what's not proven and, and it turns out that the brain is anticipating all of the things that, the, that, that we actually believe. Um, so th- the fact that this is something which has been trotted out on all sorts of occasions for all sorts of particular causes I think uh, needs to be emphasized a little bit. Yeah. And, and then the thing which struck me uh, that I thought you phrased very well in your in your book was look even if it can be shown that uh, for some types of decisions it turns out that there are factors that are going on that we're not consciously aware of that are that are uh, necessarily involved in those decisions mm-hmm. even if we and it's not clear from this as you pointed out on many occasions that that's even true in this case but even if it's the case. Well, what does that actually show? It means that for some types of decisions, we are not consciously aware of all stages of of why it is that we act in a particular way. And as you pointed out, first of all, these experiments are only looking at a very, very small and, for the most part, hugely irrelevant aspect of the decisions that we're making as conscious beings or as yeah. active agents and so forth. Whether we're, you know, we're thinking about what is how do we spontaneously flex our wrist, or which buttons should we press, whether it's left or right, they have nothing to do with the normal sorts of decisions that any reasonable person would assume would have something to do with free will, like like whether I should go to this university as opposed to that university, or or thinking through a, a myriad process, you give the example of of what you have to do to buy a seat on a plane, and, yeah, and, and, a, right. and a particular seat that you're going to buy. And these are the things that most of us mean when we talk about these sorts of things. So the implication that these decisions would necessarily have something to do with that um, is is hugely unwarranted because uh, the extrapolation, even if you assume this, which again is, uh, uh, as you point out, is uh, open for probing and, and, and doubt on all sorts of different levels, even if you were to assume that, the implication that therefore every decision we make is necessarily... Governed by our unconscious or acts of the brain that we're not necessarily aware of, and therefore we don't have control over over anything that we do is just completely unwarranted. Yeah, it's an amazing generalization. It's part of
1: Libet's view. The generalization claims are there in the paper uh, and his book. He says, "Yep, you know that's the way it's working here. Decisions are made unconsciously here, and we can generalize this to all decisions." Aside from the veto, he thinks that once you become aware of your decision, let's say, or intention, you have about 100 milliseconds to veto it. But you can never consciously initiate an action. You can only consciously stop it. Um, Yeah, the generalization is unwarranted, as you say. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the subjects are instructed not to think about when to do it. Which is exactly what
0: what you don't want to do for free will, presumably, a conscious decision. And
1: when they're careful not to do it, you get a readout like this. When they do think about it, you get a a longer tailed, uh, this is called a readiness potential, you get a longer tailed one. Hmm. But so how much are decisions that you don't think about at all but just make, like these important decisions that we're talking about? Well, not very much, which makes it harder to generalize from findings about one to findings about the other. And actually, I dispute even the claim about the findings that the decisions are made here. Now, there are later um, experiments done with different technology, but they all suffer from the problems that we're talking about, including the generalization problem. Um, Yeah, so why did it create such a storm and so much interest? You know, in a way, so the, the first Libet paper on this was published in 1982, and then there was a behavioral and brain sciences paper published in 1985. That's a big and important journal. And the articles are published with lots of commentaries. So you know there were lots of commentaries. And then interest in science, it seems to me, sort of petered out for a while. Philosophers still talked about it sometimes. I know I was writing papers on it, well, quite a while ago. Um, but then Patrick Haggard, a, a very good neuroscientist in London, just sort of resurrected the Libet style research and did some more. And that really brought it back to prominence. But what's the worry about free will? So it's pretty obvious the generalization claim isn't legitimate. There are my worries about even what's going on here. There are worries about the timing too. This turns out to be a really hard task. Hmm. Uh, I was a subject in one of these experiments, so I can tell you firsthand about it later maybe. Um, So there are all those worries. Well, one thing that seems to be going on among some scientists is that they think of free will as requiring that something immaterial, something non-physical is a cause of behavior. I'll read you some quotations from Free in a minute. I know it's puzzling, right? Uh, And so they're thinking, well, look, we're getting hard evidence that it's brain events that are causing behavior. How does this
0: lead to some immaterialist worldview? I don't understand.
1: Libet had an immaterialist view. What he wanted to do was to find evidence of a power of consciousness that sort of swoops in from outside and generates decisions.
0: That's what he, th- that, was his, that was his agenda, as it were.
1: Yeah, that's what he really wanted to do. Uh, and he thought he found some evidence for it in, you know, in the veto. And so, let me just read you a quotation. I think I have this one marked. Yeah, okay. It's from a neurobiologist, neuroscientist, uh, Reed Montague, and he's, oh, yeah, 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 he's yeah, telling yeah. us what free will means. Yeah, yeah I
0: skipped over that part, because I just see that language. Can I read it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Here's free. <laughs> It's we don't do this, you know, <laughs> we're just going to edit this
1: out. But go, go ahead, read it anyway. Oh, I can't do my joke? You can do the... It's not free,
0: but it's cheap. Okay. That's the joke.
1: <laughs> okay. Are you really going to edit this out?
0: <laughs> we, we, we haven't done the reading of the book thing before. Oh, okay. But, it's but a marvelous... Qu- I'm going to read it to you. Yeah, read it to me. It'll just take yeah. 30 wow, seconds. Well, maybe we'll
1: leave it in. Who knows? Okay. Read Montague from a 2008 article, Current Biology. Free will is the idea that we make choices and have thoughts independent of anything remotely resembling a physical process. Free will is the close cousin to the idea of the soul, the concept that you, your thoughts and feelings derive from an entity that is separate and distinct from the physical mechanisms that make up your body. From this perspective, your choices are not caused by physical events, but instead emerge wholly formed from somewhere indescribable and outside the purview of physical descriptions. This implies that free will cannot have evolved by natural selection, as that would place it directly in the stream of causally connected events. Sure. Well,
0: so logically, if you take it outside of the domain of physics, then it's not going to be subjected to the laws of physics.
1: Yeah. And he's not the only one. I mean, I, then I go on to quote uh, shorter quotations I give from other scientists who are claiming, well, you know, free will requires that souls are at work. And then you can see why people would think that a study that suggests strongly <laughs> That the brain is heavily involved in decision production would lead them to claim that there's no free will, but there, I think you know, it's all gone off the deep end. Yeah. We shouldn't think of free will like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, once once you give up on materialism, you know, all all bets are off. I mean, you can do anything. You can start having angels hovering around, and yeah. and, and uh, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not making some some ironclad metaphysical claim that I'm aware or unaware of the. Uh, of any spiritual beings or angels or anything like that I'm not saying all I'm saying is that it seems like scientists shouldn't be concerned with any of that and if uh, it, the business of science should be to be exploring sufficient causes within the laws of physics of the physical world and by laws of physics I'm implying you know laws of chemistry laws of biology yeah, yeah. laws of laws of stuff out there yeah. and once once we're Going away from that, it seems to me we ain't doing science anymore. And and if that's our agenda, then maybe we should get another day job.
1: <laughs> I <just> see. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, there are a couple more points to make about this yeah, that yeah, are please, interesting. So, please. here's another one. Um, so again, what you're doing here is after the fact, you're reporting using the clock on where you figured the spot was when you first became aware of your intention. And imagine that we're systematically off by that, because you know usually we're not trying to time when we made our decisions; we're just making them. Right. Right. Imagine that we're like 50 milliseconds off. Right. We're always kind of late. Well, does that is that going to stand in the way of free will? What if a lot of conscious processing went into the production of the decision? Isn't that good enough? So, um, I think that just doesn't matter for free will. The lateness of it. Also. The task really is very artificial. I, I try this with audiences uh, sometimes when I give talks on this. I say, OK, so now for the next 90 seconds or two minutes, just flex your arm like this every once in a while while you're listening to me. And I'm going to ask you a question about it later. But you know, try to keep track of what I'm saying and, and so on. And they'll do it. You know, It looks kind of weird to me because I'm looking at all these people. And, <laughs> um, and I tell them they look funny, they laugh. Um, And then my question is, so how many of you were aware when you flexed that you had an intention to do it just then? And almost nobody says yes. And that's because these things we can do automatically. We don't need to make conscious decisions to do them. We just have a plan to do them every once in a while, and we carry it out. Um, So what you're doing when you do this experiment is forcing people to be conscious of something that they wouldn't normally be conscious of. Now, in my case, uh, it wasn't really an intention or an urge. I mentioned that I was a subject. So the plan was um, I gave a lecture to the a motor control unit at the National Institutes of Health, and it was on free will and neuroscience. The plan was I do the lecture, then I'm a subject in the experiment, and then they take me out to dinner. So after the lecture, you know, I went to the uh, lab. I sat in the chair, got wired up and I knew what I was supposed to do. Flex whenever I wanted to and then report after, the, after I flexed where the spot was on the clock. So what you do is the clock runs for another revolution or sometimes a revolution and a half or two. After you flex, then it stops and you get a cursor and you move the hand to the point on the clock where you thought it was when you first became aware of your intention or urge. Um, but no urges came to mind, no intentions, nothing was happening really except I was thinking, how do people do this and what am I going to do because I don't want to look like a jerk and I do want to have dinner, right? (laughs) So the plan that I hit on was I would say now silently to myself every once in a while and I would treat that as a go signal or you could say as an expression of a decision I'd flex in response to it and I'd try to remember where the spot was on the clock when I said now silently to myself and I thought it was going pretty well. And then Mark Hallett, who was in charge of the lab, and who was the guy who invited me to give the talk too, said, uh, Al, you know, you're flexing in too wimpy a way. We're not getting good readings. You need to flex in a more manly way. I think that's how he, no, he didn't. (laughs) I made that up. I made the manly part up. Don't put that in. Uh, OK, so now here I am, just saying now to myself silently every once in a while, trying to flex in a manly way, trying to keep track of the clock. And those flexes I could have made without being conscious of any intentions at all if I didn't have the instruction to report. Hmm. Okay, So the instruction generates something that you, consciousness, a kind of consciousness anyway, or consciousness of something that there wouldn't be without those instructions. And that makes it even harder to generalize from findings about cases like this to thoughtful decisions.
0: And, and, and I think this idea of the process of making decisions when you break it down, and you've talked about um, how difficult it is to actually develop a decision procedure and then how y- you might be distracted by the fact that you have this reporting aspect as well, that's all going on. I, I think we're all familiar with the fact that we have some decisions that we're making or some processes that we're making that are sometimes unconscious or we're we're not deliberately thinking about and sometimes we are thinking about we've all had this experience i think of driving somewhere and then realizing afterwards you know i don't actually remember taking those streets or 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 doing that i think most people uh have had experiences where they haven't been consciously involved in every single aspect of decision and and the the borderline between what is conscious and what is what is not conscious is very fuzzy and it's very complicated i'm sure and all the rest of that but that doesn't seem to imply at least to me anything terribly profound about uh, about the fact that we're somehow automata and uh, automata and we' and we're being directed by our brains or, or yeah this, I, or some such thing I mean I it's agree. just this is all messy this is I mean what's actually happening is very difficult interesting results but I think um, the idea of, of, of trying to to generalize to something as uh, uh, as Profoundly counterintuitive, uh, as as what you were what you were saying the generalizations amount to is is uh, especially when you put in the immaterialist o- agenda yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean that's just wacky. I, I I don't I don't understand why more people aren't drawing attention to that.
1: Um. Oh, I don't know. You know that that is something I thought about. Um, for one thing, well about the news coverage of this sort of thing, for example, which is relevant to your question. Um, weird news generates a lot more attention than normal news. Yeah. So the news that, oh, you have free will, don't worry about it, you know, who's going to write about that? Because most people assume they have it. Um, but this weird news that you don't generates excitement. Um, and the excitement might help to generate grant money that helps to generate more work of this kind. Now, I really think there are interesting payoffs in the work, in the actual neuroscientific sure. work, sure. whatever the conclusions drawn may sure. be. And, you know, I, mean, I love- they're interesting I love, experiments, uh, Yeah, yeah. But why people think it shows that there's no free will, and that really, again, I mean, we're just back to, some people think free will requires that the soul is doing it and brains aren't. Uh, um, but once it gets that far, it's no interest. It's not interesting
0: anymore. You just sort of lose interest in yeah. it. We didn't talk about all the experiments of the Libet type experiments, and there have been some more recent ones that you mentioned in your book. But I would like to move on to uh, another area: what social psychologists have been doing with respect to free will and the implications, again, by their definition of what free will is. And uh, mm-hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, There's a style of study called situationism um, that indicates that the situations in which we find ourselves have a really powerful influence on our behavior in ways that we don't recognize, actually. So I'll tell you about, I don't know, maybe one, maybe even three of these studies. But we'll start with a study on what's called the bystander effect. And it was motivated by what happened to Kitty Genovese 50 years ago in New York City, where apparently she was uh, murdered on a public street in the evening, and many people could witness it from their apartment windows. And according to news reports, nobody called the police. Um, Now, what you wonder is why not? You know, it's an easy thing to do, the person needs help, why not do it? So a pair of psychologists um, decided that they would try to study this phenomenon. Here's one of the experiments, it's it's, uh, very nicely done. Um, So you get subjects to come and you lead them to believe that they're going to have a conversation with other college students about college life and problems encountered in college life. And There are three different conditions. In one condition you think you're in one room and there are people in other rooms, you think only one of the other rooms is occupied, so you're just talking to one person nobody else can hear. In another one, you think uh, there are two other people than you involved, and in another one, five other people than you involved. Now, what's actually going on is it's just you, and there's a tape recorder in another room, and they're told that the microphones work in such a way that when one person is talking over it, nobody else can talk. Nobody else can be heard. And so what happens is they play a tape recording that goes on for two minutes and five seconds of somebody who says that he's having a lot of trouble, thinks he's going to have a seizure, is really worried, starts stuttering, and so on. And what they want to find out is, does it matter how many people you think can hear the voice? Does that matter to your behavior? And when uh, you think you're the only one who can hear the voice, 85% of the people leave the room and go get the experimenter before the tape is done playing. Uh, when you think one other person can hear the voice, the helping rate goes down to 62%. And when you think uh, four others can hear it, it goes down to 31 So what you're thinking is the case about how many people can hear it has a huge effect on average on your behavior. And it might seem that, seems to me, that it shouldn't, that the right thing to do is run out of the room and get the experimenter no matter how many other people you think in different rooms can hear this guy. So that's one study among many. Right. Um, there's a, a neat study but I don't remember the data. I don't, I mean the ac- actual statistics and I don't think I talked about it in the book where um, people are given a chance to help either by giving change or you know something trivial like that. And whether they help or don't help depends on whether there's a good smell in the environment, <laughs> like coffee or baking cookies, or just, you know, like a neutral smell. And the helping behavior goes way up when there's a good smell okay. than when it's neutral. And nobody who helps would say, oh, I helped because... Oh, the <laughs> smell. <man>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nobody who doesn't help would say, oh, I didn't help because it was a neutral smell. But yeah, so these smells have a huge effect on, on behavior. Um, there is... Philip Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiment, which is a great old experiment in which um, people volunteered to take part in a a mock prison life thing, where some of the people would be guards and some of the people would be prisoners.
0: Arbitrarily chosen, arbitrarily
1: divided. Right, arbitrarily. And the ones who were selected to be prisoners were actually picked up in police cars at their residences and driven to the Palo uh, Palo Alto Police Station and then Uh, from there to the prison, which was in the basement of the Stanford Psychology building. And the experiment was supposed to go on for two weeks. They had to cancel it after six days because things were really getting out of hand. And uh, a lot of the guards became bullies. Uh, They had prisoners do things like wash toilets with their bare hands uh, and all other kinds of nasty stuff. And um, one thing that's really interesting about it is these prisoners just stayed there, and they could have left. They could have said, no, I'm done with this, this is a stupid experiment, I'm gone. Um, there was no way to predict which guards would become bullies, nobody, you know, nobody could predict it. Um, so there it looks like just playing this role, just role playing, has an enormous influence on behavior. Here's my confusion with,
0: with this. I don't have any doubt that societal factors, cultural factors, uh, our surroundings consciously or unconsciously play a significant role in uh, in affecting our desires, our actions our motivations uh, and i don 't pretend to have a, a, a clear or deep understanding of that, but as a principle i 'm sure that 's going on you 've mentioned some obvious examples. I certainly had no awareness of the fact that smell may be causing me in some particular way to be acting mm-hmm. differently than uh, uh, than I thought I might otherwise be acting or have some effect on me or whatever. Um, so the idea that um, I am not completely conscious of all the factors that go into every decision that I make, I am not aware of all the factors that go into every decision that I make, I will accept without question. Yeah. Um, but that seems a different sort of statement to me as to whether I have the opportunity to to have it in my power to go left at the crossroads instead of going right at the crossroads. It seems like a completely different thing to me. I see. And so, um, and again, there's this um, uh, equivalence of uh, my sense of what free will is with these other factors. I think they're, in, they're important. I think they're interesting on a societal level. Uh, we should, should certainly be aware of it because, I uh, mean, you mentioned the Stanford Prison Experiment, but uh, obviously... These experiments are done with an eye towards understanding how the horrible atrocities during the Nazi era might have been perpetrated by so many people, and, and, and that gives us hopefully some understanding of the human condition so that we can ideally uh, not have to replay the same uh, atrocious tape and so forth. So I'm not suggesting that these things aren't relevant or important or what have you, mm-hmm. but I guess my problem is, as I understand it, they don't really have a lot to do with my my sense of what free will is. Yeah, OK. That's interesting.
1: Well, here's one way to think about it in response to your question in particular. So think of control as coming in degrees. And then you think you, know, you have some control over what you decide. And what you might think is the control that you have shrinks a bit as things uh, that you're not aware of influence your decisions. So the more influence things you're not aware of have on your decisions, you might think, the less control you have over them. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I certainly don't see that the control is shrinking all the way down to zero. Like, go back to the bystander study. Even when the person thought that four other people could hear the voice, well, 31% of the people did help.
0: Exactly.
1: And then you wonder about the other 70 or so. Could they have helped? and maybe so, right? So the um, the bystander effect actually made it more difficult for them to help than would have been the case otherwise. We can see that from the case where you think you're the only one who can hear. Helping goes way up. But does it make it impossible? No. So maybe it's harder to make good decisions under conditions like this. In fact, it is. And easier to make nice decisions when there are good smells in the environment, but that's not as though we're closing off one door entirely and forcing the absolutely. person the other way. So no, yeah, I agree.
0: And it's also it's also dependent on uh, what sorts of decisions we're talking about. And again, that's what that's what you mentioned here when you're talking about the, li- the libid experiment or, or related experiments about pushing the left button or pushing the right button that, that, uh, that came, I think, in the 90s uh, that, that you were talking about, or maybe even more recently than yeah. that. Um, so these factors certainly play a role. But if I'm thinking, for example, about um, where I want to go to college, or if I'm, if, or if I'm thinking about uh, who I'm going to marry, well, or if I'm thinking about something which is really significant in, in, in terms of my life, I'm likely not going to do it Uh, Just for a moment for a a short period of time. I'm I'm the the idea that I may be Influenced by a smell in the air or something like that will be filtered out over the longer term because I'm going to think about it I'm going to deliberate. I'm going to Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to other people about it I'm going to mull it over and 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 so I'll grant you that there is a spectrum but one way that we can and do I'm sure uh, ensure that we have as much conscious awareness as we possibly can over significant decisions is by focusing on the things that we can control and by taking a longer period of time to actually weigh up for these, these sorts of decisions. Yeah. So again, it's this generalization problem that I, okay, operationally I say, that's interesting. We're influenced by more things than I thought we're interested in. I mean, it's, it's just like when, when you, uh, when you're shown uh, maybe some, I don't know if subliminal advertising actually works or if it doesn't work, and I don't know where the current studies are these days, but yeah. I, I can imagine that it just for the sake of this discussion, I can imagine it's possible yeah. that it works, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so... I would say, oh, look at that. Um, Statistically, for a large number of people, this sort of thing actually does work. Isn't that interesting? Well, I guess we better be thinking about this. We better be preparing people to make sure that they're not brainwashed and all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. But it certainly doesn't make me think that every conceivable (laughs) decision I make, I have no control over or something like that. And as long as I can control major decisions or step back and be able to do that, it means that I take this whole issue of what, free will really is off the table. It becomes a sociological, operational, psychological or cognitive science thing. Do You see what I'm, what I'm saying? Like from, a, yeah. from, a, from a, a, the principle of free will, it seems to me I've already pushed that aside. I've convinced myself that yeah, I have control over, over the situation. If I want to take a, uh, maybe not as much control as I, maybe not perfect control in mm-hmm. all circumstances all the time, yeah but I don't have to worry about this decision already being made for me.
1: Yeah, I I agree entirely. So maybe before people think about it, they think, I don't know who would think this, but they think I have total control over everything I decide and I'm not influenced by anything I'm unaware of. You know, they might think that. Well, we have good evidence that things aren't like that. Um, And so some people might be disappointed some people like you might say, well, I, you know, I thought it was like that, that there are all, lots of influences on what I decide, but still in the end, most of the time, it's up to me what I decide. Um, yeah. Now, there are people who think, not so much theorists, but people I hear questions from when I give talks, that free will has to be an all or nothing thing. So either you, you have it and you're using it all the time, or... You don't have it at all. Now, if somebody has that way of thinking about free will, then they might think, well, look, in some of these situations, you've lost it. The situation really is control. I mean, uh, the situation, yeah, really is in control of what you're doing. And so if it's all or nothing, then you never have it. But, you
0: know, it's just- But that's, that's of, like getting back to, 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 to yeah. uh, uh system of beliefs, right? This idea that if, if uh, it, it either has to be all one way or all the other way. And so if I have one example of, of something that I think is suggestive of it being one way, then therefore it implies that it's always that way. I mean, that's, that seems unfounded to me. Yeah, that's, that is. It is. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you have planned for the, uh, the, um, the next little while? Not only work in self-control, that you're, you've just started this, this new um, three-year project on studying self-control rigorously, mm-hmm. but also if you have any other before we get there, maybe any other free will type of experiments that you're either, you'd like to be involved in or you could imagine uh, should be done. If I could give you uh, an infinite amount of money, uh, or at least a large amount of money, and, and, uh, and five years to conduct whatever experiment you'd want to conduct. Do mm-hmm. you have any that, that uh, would spring to mind? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I do.
1: Um, so about the bystander effect, for example, or any of these effects that we're talking about, the situationist effects. One thing I'd like to know is how much would educating people about the existence of these effects, how much would that influence their behavior in the future? So just to give you an example of what I mean. So I told you about the the one bystander study. Um, Suppose we educated people about the bystander effect, and then we asked them to, come back to the lab, say, in two weeks. And we staged a bystander scenario, like a fake injury or something. Hmm. Um, and we see what percentage of those people help. We're going to have our subjects walking by one by one, but they'll be in crowds of Confederates, say. And then um, you can do the same experiment, but without the uh, education in advance about so that, the effect. That
0: your, your control group.
1: Yeah, and see what what the difference is. I would like to think that education just about the bystander effect, making it sink in, would make people less likely to display it. And I think the way it could work is they think, geez, there is that effect. I don't like being pushed around by situations like that. And anyway, I know what I should do. And so next time, I'll do the right thing. You know, I'd like to think it goes that way, but I'd like to see evidence.
0: And yeah. if, it, if it does go that way, and I suspect you're right, I suspect it will go that way, th- at least there'll be some statistical effect, I would guess. And if that's true, that certainly would argue for a more systemic, coherent education process writ large in our society for these very issues. Yeah. Because um, that is important from a moral perspective. We would like to be living in a society where large numbers of people don't, ignore people who are who are in peril. And so if that can be, if one can be educated to avoid that in the future, then that would be in all of our interests.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. Uh, I give a lot of talks to undergrads these days, you know, traveling around the country and other places. And um, often I'll give this talk about situationism. And in the end, what I do is I ask them what they think they'll do next time they're in a crowded mall and they see a young kid crying and looking lost or an old person fall. And I say what the effect predicts that you'll do is just walk away mm-hmm. and everybody else will too. But what will you do mm-hmm. and what, you sh- what should you do? And I think that itself uh, can make a difference. So I think education about this on a broad scale, yeah, would make, would make a difference. But this is just what I think. If we did a study like right. this or
0: some studies like this, then we'd have good evidence about it. And in terms of these situationist um, effects, as it were, are there psychologists who build these into a larger framework? So the way I would look at it is to say, well, these are, these are revealing, interesting data points that we're getting. So there's this one effect over here, and there's another effect over there. Um, are there people who say, well, this is all part of my overarching psychological system to understand human psychology, at least, or this aspect of human psychology. So the bystander effect comes out naturally from you know, my, my system, and these other effects come out naturally from my system. Do people do things like that in, in social psychology, as far as you're aware? You know, th- they might, and I might not be aware of it. But I'm not, I'm not aware of it.
1: Um, now, some people have drawn the conclusion that really all of our behavior is entirely driven by situations, and you know, so we never act freely. I've seen that. No,
0: but really, really? hold on, back, 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 back up, back up. So all of our, uh, all of our situation, uh, all of our behavior by everyone, one hundred percent, yeah, is is driven by situations. So there's no free will.
1: But the data don't support it because we have people behaving differently in the same
0: situation in just one study you would it, think would be able yeah, you know, yeah. to so just shoot that one down yeah yeah
1: so then what they'd have to claim is well these people are such that when they're in this situation they help and the other people aren't but you know that's just empty
0: it's empty yeah i was waiting till you get the dutch just empty because your tolerance seems much higher than mine <laughs> <laughs> um so i've kept you here for a while um i i I could go on, but, uh, but let me just ask, is there anything that you would like to talk about that, that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Is there anything that we've, we've missed and that uh, we, should, we should dwell on?
1: Well, we, we never really did get to that uh, second grade of free will, the mid-grade. We could yeah. just do a little bit on that just so people I'm, know I'm, how
0: it's supposed to work. I'm happy, I'm happy to do that.
1: Okay, um, so here's, here's the idea. So remember that first grade regular free will is compatible with determinism. Doesn't say it requires determinism, but it's compatible.
0: See, that's the one I'd call empty. And and you hate that one. Okay.
1: So for people who hate that one, I have this other one. And what we have now is an indeterministic setup so that the relevant laws are just going to be probabilistic rather than exceptionless. And and you're going to have this indeterminism, sometimes in decision-producing streams, right up to the moment of decision so that
0: i can make a decision
1: holding the past and the laws is fixed although you decided this way you could have decided that way right, without that. any monkey business like if things had been different you would have decided differently um, so what i do then is just build that in to the the regular free will so you add an ingredient to it and the ingredient is this indeterminism take away the determinism and if you're sane and rational and well-informed, um, make a decision on the basis of good information rationally, nobody's pushing you around, that's enough for free will. So it's just this change. Um, and this one I think you'd be maybe happy about. And then what you wonder is, OK, does real decision making work in this indeterministic way? And we don't have you know, conclusive evidence one way or the other. This is a really hard thing to measure. And the indeterminism there would be actual uh, you know, physical indeterminism, nothing, right. nothing fancy.
0: Well, but it is different from the way we approach most physical circumstances. When you say nothing fancy, not all physical circumstances, but most of the time mm-hmm. when we think about things evolving according to certain physical principles and physical laws, uh, we're imagining it's deterministic.
1: Yeah at the macro level. But you know, when people say that, I say, right, that is really just most of the time. So think about how a Geiger counter works, yeah. right? It's detecting beta decay. Beta decay is supposed to be indeterministic. If it detects it, it clicks. You hear it. That's a macro event. Uh, it's an undetermined macro event. And there could be things like that in the brain. Um, I did talk about the fruit flies a bit in, in the book, didn't I? So, there are some biologists who think they found evidence of genuine indeterminism in little fry, uh, fly brains. Now, I don't, I don't want to describe the experiment necessarily, but suppose they're right and there really is indeterminism there. Then that could be part of our evolutionary heritage. So it may just be that the brain works indeterministically in that connection. Now, why would it... Um, Maybe that's the way it is, but then it turns out to be useful for certain purposes. Like you don't want to be overly predictable to enemies, say. Now, one way to achieve not being overly predictable would just be a deterministic system that has built into it you know, different ways to go on different occasions. But another way would be uh, to have an indeterministic system that can respond differently to the same stimuli.
0: See, see now, now, I'm, now I'm confused since we're having... a Conversation about this that uh, I'm going to flex my intolerant muscles again, it seems. <laughs> um, so, I think the idea of looking at motivations from an evolutionary perspective, which is I think what you were doing, um, in terms of, well, why would we want to do this? Well, this might help us and yeah. from an evolutionary perspective. I think that's a little different because, again, I'm looking at the whole system. If the premise is the whole system is deterministic, then evolution is also deterministic. That everything is deterministic, mm-hmm. um, and so I can't conceivably I can't conceivably um, uh, use indeterminism or or some aspects of that as a as a as an evolutionary tool in order to show my adaptability. Do you understand what I'm what I'm what I'm saying? I'm not be entirely prepared. sure. So the background here
1: is. Now we're assuming the universe is not deterministic. Okay, so now right. we're... Assu- well, okay, so okay. if it's
0: not deterministic, then... then If it's not deterministic... Um, then evolution is not deterministic, and then, uh, you know... I mean, that, that, that's what we, I think that's what we assume with evolution anyway, right? That things are not... I mean, isn't that implicit in the assumption of evolutionary doctrine, right? That... that that there's no necessary determinism. When you look at a species, when we, when we talk about it from this notion of a species being more apt to survive or less apt to survive or fitter mm-hmm. and not fitter, we're looking at these, all these different possibilities that, that could actually happen, and then there's, up oh, there's a mutation, there's something like that that happens over there, and so, yeah, it turns out in the fullness of time that this one actually... Uh, makes it through where these this selection of, of different guys make it through.
1: Right? Yeah, we talk about chance selection. Actually it's consistent with determinism because it could just be that the chance is epistemic in the sense that right. we you know we can't do the
0: calculation. We have no idea. But it's but if, consistent. If, if you were clever enough you would have known that this one species would have made it through all the way from the very beginning. Yeah, it could it could go that way. Or the universe could
1: actually be indeterministic the way, you know a lot of people in quantum mechanics say, and evolution work in an indeterministic way. Right. And then decision making could, I mean, as another thing, just a third thing, work that way too sometimes. Um, and that's what the, the mid grade people want, so that you get to a certain point in the process, you decide to do a certain thing, but everything being the same up until then, you could have decided to do something else. For that, you do need. I mean, if it's brains making decisions, you do need indeterminism in brains. So you need that really that the laws, the relevant laws, be probabilistic rather than exceptionless. Um, now that won't be enough for people who think you need even more control. Yeah, but they're over crazy. Those do. are these
0: immaterialist guys, right? These are these guys that 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 that. Okay, crazy is maybe too strong. Uh, maybe not but but uh, <laughs> th- these are people who I would say are outside of the scientific domain. This is what I said before, right? So I mean, if you a priori want to believe that uh, in dualism, which it seems they're they're believing there's something outside of material objects that are subjected to the laws of nature that we necessarily need to ascribe, well, then that's what we're talking about, right yeah, yeah. so so once we go there, I mean you're you're more tolerant, more open. Less empty, you know. All these other things. You're, you're, you're a philosopher, so you, you have time for that. I'm just saying, that may be part of your belief system, but I just don't think that's appropriate to bring to a scientific discussion. I mean, yeah. if, if, you really want to discuss scientific issues and uh, uh, about what we can, uh, what we can do about um, how we can solve this, then. I don't know. You you, you, you want to have them as a category? That's fine. But I, I mean, for me, as someone of a scientific disposition, I just have a difficult time dealing with
1: that. Yeah, well. not, I think that's fair enough. So, uh, and again, that's the the one that I don't really say much about because yeah. I'm not an expert on
0: souls. So uh, so so let me, if you've got a bit of time left, if you're not if you're yeah. not too uh, too too tired, um, I, I read this book by uh, by John Searle. About uh, uh, neurobiology and free will, mm-hmm. and he is someone who, if I understand his argument correctly, is very much in the same um, category as as I am, which is this mid-range belief. So, mm-hmm. just to, to recapitulate in my words and tell me if you think that this is w- what you're saying, I believe that it's it's basically nonsensical to live. In, in a world that we agree is deterministic in terms of its full physical laws, um, it, it's, it's, let me put it another way, I think it's incoherent to imagine free will being compatible at some fundamental level with uh, a deterministic universe, a materialistic deterministic universe. And so if, we, if you believe that, the question, as you uh, eloquently put it, is how can we find a way to make these fundamental laws of, of nature at least in some way probabilistic or at least non, not entirely deterministic? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's through the invocation of quantum mechanics, who knows? Maybe it's through the invocation of you know, chaos theory or something like that, I mean, I, I, who knows? And, and it's a complicated business. But um, so uh, then then the question is, well, what can you do further scientifically about that? If you have those sets of beliefs, mm-hmm. can you imagine setting up experiments to be able to just imagine them, let alone conduct them? Can, yeah. you, can, you, can you go to some level of being able to probe that, uh, call it what you will, metaphysical belief or philosophical belief or orientation um, in, in some kind of coherent way? Can you even imagine a set of experiments that you might do to be able to probe that? To determine, for example,
1: whether the brain works indeterministically or not. Um, no, I can't. Maybe in the distant future. But you know, the the indeterministic um, events are going to be small-scale events. They're going to be in a living brain. Uh, how are we going to get get there? You know, and do do yeah. the studies. So, no. I mean, fanciful experiments. If on the basis of brain scans. Scientists could predict with 100% accuracy which button the guy's going to press 10 minutes from now. Um, I'd be, uh, you know, a little bit impressed about that. By that, maybe quite impressed. Yeah, quite impressed. But I wouldn't necessarily generalize to all decisions either. So that study, you know, one study like that wouldn't do it. Yeah, um, yeah I think I think once we're down to that level, once we're down to the metaphysical level, whether you have. Need determinism or indeterminism or whatever, um, we've gone beyond what we can study now.
0: Well, Al, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback conversations about philosophy, Volume One along with separate discussions with James Robert Brown, Patricia Churchland, Charles Foster, and Scott Soames. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.